Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning, Harvest. Merry Christmas. It's our Christmas service today, and uh, it's also the end of Advent for us. Um, And so hopefully it's been a really meaningful season of preparing your heart for the wonder of what Christmas represents. And I hope you're gathered with people that you love and that you're feeling the nearness of God to you this morning. Today we wrap up our Advent series, and I'm going to be preaching on the topic of love. What is love? It's almost impossible for me to ask the question without hearing the Hadaway song in my head, but it's an important question. What is love? And it's important because we all sense instinctively that we know what it is, um, but it's not that easy to put into words. In fact, if you sat around a table and had a discussion about what love is with a group of people, you could probably go for hours talking about what that is. So one way to explore what love is, is by asking, how do you know or determine whether someone loves you or not? Well, the Bible tells us in many places that God loves us. But how do we know that that's true? Where is the proof or the the, the um revelation of God's love to us found in Scripture. It's tempting to look at our circumstances to answer that question. Does God really love us? Does He love me? It's really tempting to look at what's happening in my life and base my answer on that. Um, And that's really natural to do. I do it on a regular basis. I just say, is God good? Does He love me? And if I'm having a really hard time, it's a tricky way to answer that question. Because if the love of God is rooted to what's happening in my life, then the love of God is a very shaky, very fragile thing. Blessings can point to God's God's love for us. It can be a sign of it. But our circumstances cannot be the final proof of whether God loves us or not. So what does the Bible have to say about it? Well, when you look at a couple places where Paul wrote about the love of God for us, Here's what he has to say. In Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, listen, who loved me and gave himself for me. Later in Ephesians 5.1-2, he writes, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So on several occasions, Paul says that the proof of God's love for us is seen most clearly in the willing sacrifice of Jesus for us. He loved us, and we know this, because He gave Himself up for us. You know, love may be a feeling, and feelings are definitely involved in love, But love is more than a feeling. It's an action, and according to the the example of Jesus, it's often a very costly action. The Apostle John in 1 John 3.16 goes even further. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. The sacrifice of Jesus, according to the Apostle John, is the very definition of love itself. 
And in receiving this sacrificial love from Jesus, we are then, as His followers, compelled to love one another in the same way. I think most of us can recognize the feelings associated with love. Think about someone that you really love and the feelings that rise up in you, warmth or attraction or admiration or even protectiveness. But how do those feelings spill over into the real world? In other words, what does love look like when it's fleshed out or lived out in a real person? A great place to turn is 1 Corinthians 13, of course. It's what we often call the love chapter. And I want to focus on verses 4 to 7. And this is a passage often read at weddings. But you've got to understand that Paul didn't write these words for married couples. Even though we read that at weddings, it was really written to a church that had forgotten how to love one another and was being torn apart by conflict. And so I don't have time to do a deep dive into this passage. We could turn this passage into a whole series, really. But I, what I want to do is try to distill the words of 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7, into a tangible picture of love lived out in a person. And I'll just call this person love. But as I say love, think about a real human being who embodies this kind of loving. And if God uses this to tweak your conscience a bit, that's okay. But really what I'd like you to focus on is how drawn you feel to such a person and how much it would affect others if you could love them this way. So 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, we'll look at one verse at a time. And I just want to paint a word picture for you. It says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. So love is willing to wait if waiting is what the other person needs. Love doesn't bail on you because you are slow to change. Love makes any time you spend in their presence feel warm and inviting and safe. Love doesn't seethe with jealousy when good things happen to you, but it genuinely celebrates your good fortune, and your happiness. Love seems truly interested in you, and it listens more than it talks. Love makes you feel valued and important, seen and heard. Look at verse 5. Love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. In other words, love never makes you feel belittled or violate your dignity. It takes a lot to make love angry, and when it does get angry, it cools off and forgives very quickly. It doesn't hold your past failures against you or keep score of how things have gone. Love gives you room to change and wants you to be able to move on. When you look at verse 6, it says, Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. This is a tricky one, but here's what I truly believe it means. Love will never gaslight you. Love will never dodge responsibility for their own failings. Love isn't defensive when you challenge them with hard truths. And love will never pretend that the wrong that they have done to you is justified. And so because love is this way, when it challenges you with hard truths, 
you can trust and receive it because that's the way that love also receives it from others. Verse 7, it says, Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This means that love puts up with a lot of your junk and keeps offering consistent support. Love still believes there is good in you, even if it's really hard to see. Love never stops hoping that you're going to change and grow and flourish. In other words, love never stops hoping for the very best in you, and it never stops hoping for the very best for you. And love will never give up or quit on you, even when you're trying really hard to push love away. As you heard that description, and man, we blazed through it. I would love someday to return to this passage and unpack that even more. But as you heard that, did you start thinking about real people in your life who you really wish would love you that way? Were you convicted of people in your life that you know you need to love better in this way? You see now how powerful love really is. Because in these relationships with these real people, the one thing you crave most and that they crave from you is love lived out this way. Love isn't some fuzzy sentiment. It's a way of living in this world with other people that is so powerful, so attractive, has such a powerful effect on you and on others around you. And you can begin to see that if a person actually loved this way, they would have a profound influence on the people they interact with. I think most of us find it's easier to love someone that we consider our own people, or these days the word is tribe. If someone is in your tribe, it's not that hard to love them, even love them this way. Maybe it's because when we are loving our own people, it's in a weird way another way of loving ourselves. But in one of his most radical and difficult teachings, Jesus said these words. These are really crazy words if you think about what he's saying. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Later on in that same passage, Jesus will acknowledge, look, everyone can love their friends. That's not remarkable. But the call of God on us is to go beyond the unremarkable love for our own people and extend that command to love to include even our enemies, those people that we can't stand and that can't stand us. Now, you know, the truth about these weird days we're living in where things are so divided, there's so much societal tension, is that it's actually easier to think about this concept of enemies. You know when somebody in the, in the movies is killed and they ask the, the surviving relatives, do they have any enemies? You're like, geez, we're not living in medieval times. Who has enemies? But the truth is, it's really easy to think about this idea of my enemy today. Because think about the strong negative feelings you have for people who represent a different tribe, who represent a way of looking at the world or at morality or what is right or wrong that is so radically different than the way you look at it. And as you think about those people, maybe you're not enemies like in a pitched military battle, but these are people that you would much rather never spend time with again. People that you would like to just delete from your existence and avoid if at all possible. 
and they probably feel the same way about you. And if we call these people our enemies, then the teaching of Jesus is that the command to love doesn't need to be given when you're dealing with your very own people, your own tribe, but it's most important when you're in the presence of an enemy. It's really easy to justify our hatred of those we consider our enemies because they're worthy of contempt. Their own behavior, their worldview, their actions make them evil or morally bankrupt or just not worth our time. And yet when you look at what Paul writes in Romans 5.8, this is so powerful. He says, God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what Paul's saying is, the way you feel about your enemies, where you just want to dismiss them and say, look, they're not good people. I don't need to be around them. I'd be just okay if they stopped existing. And what Paul reminds us is that we were all once so with God. We didn't begin this life as the friends of God. We didn't begin this life as His allies or His followers. There was a time in our lives where we were once, according to Romans 5.10, we were the enemies of God. Paul later writes in Ephesians 2.3, we were in that state deserving of the wrath God felt towards us. You know, if there are people in this world who are deserving of your wrath, for whom you spare no disdain, you look down your nose at them, you see, you see them as less than nothing. And if there are people like that deserving of your wrath, is it so hard to think that there was a point in our lives, in all our lives, where we were so rejecting of God that we were deserving of His wrath as well. And yet, Jesus calls us to love our enemies. And He can say that because that's exactly what He did for us. You know, at the end of that radical teaching in Matthew 5, He says this one sentence that has confused a lot of people. It's been really misunderstood. But he says in Matthew 5.48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's tricky because we love to say in our day, hey, nobody's perfect. And so this idea that Jesus could say to us with a straight face, be perfect as God is perfect, it sounds like how on earth are we even supposed to apply this? You feel defeated just hearing it. And yet the word perfect is, the, is it's the problematic part because in the Greek, it doesn't mean someone who has achieved ultimate perfection. It really is a word that points towards completion or wholeness or maturity. Really what Jesus is saying is this. The ability to love your enemies is the epitome of spiritual maturity. In other words, if you want to know whether you're spiritually mature, don't look at how many trophies are on your shelf for the Bible quiz contest or any of that. The idea is the epitome, the absolute height of spiritual maturity is that you're able to love your enemies. In fact, when he says be perfect or mature or complete as your heavenly Father is complete, what Jesus is saying is we are never more like the heart of God than when we are loving those that we consider our enemies. You know, it might seem strange to say it this way, but Christmas is really about the enemy love of God. John chapter 1 is all about what we call the incarnation, 
where God literally became meat, flesh and blood the person of Jesus Christ. That's really what we're celebrating at Christmas, isn't it? We think of it as the birth of baby Jesus, but the birth of baby Jesus is the incarnation of God, God stepping down into the world and becoming one of us. So do you realize that John chapter 1 is really a Christmas passage? Luke gives a very detailed account of the Christmas story, and so does Matthew. Mark just sort of skips it. But a lot of people think that John doesn't address Christmas at all. But he does because John chapter 1 is a Christmas passage. And look at what he says in verses 10 to 12. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. What is John saying here? He's saying that Jesus entered a world filled with his enemies. Do you realize on that first Christmas day there was not a single Christian on the whole earth? Christ had not come. There was no one who followed him. He entered a world filled with people who did not acknowledge him, recognize him, even as he made his claims and revealed himself. They rejected him. And yet, for those few who accepted him, believed him, he opened up a pathway for them to no longer be the enemies of God, but to be reconciled to God and become not just friends, but to become the children of God himself. No longer enemies. They could become God's sons and daughters, reconciled to Him. I really benefited from Tim Mackey's preaching. I listened to a good amount of his preaching on the topic of love as I got ready for this sermon. And one of the things I really liked was his definition of biblical love. He defines love in the Scriptures as God practices love, as a settled purpose to act in a way that brings about the well-being of another person regardless of how they respond. In other words, biblical love, God's love, is a choice, a decision to act a certain way for the benefit of another, whether they will respond to it well or not. It's a choice that rises out of who we are, who God is, not how that person will meet us. This is demonstrated in the fact that Jesus died for everyone who would believe in Him, but so many, even having heard about Him, seen His miracles, ultimately rejected Him. And yet that did not keep Him from loving them through His sacrifice. So often we decide how we're going to act towards people based on our guess at whether it's going to do any good or not, whether it's going to make any difference or not. Love is not a calculated thing. Love is an irrepressible thing that rises out of our character and ultimately out of the character of God in us. Let me end this way. In his great book, Strength to Love, if you haven't read it, it's a book really worth reading. Many call it Martin Luther King's Uh, Junior's best book ever. He wrote these powerful words in a chapter on enemy love. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. 
Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate that God reached across a great expanse to us, His enemies, so that through Jesus He would open up a way for us to no longer be His enemies, but to become His friends and His sons and daughters. Let me give God the last word. In Romans 5.10, here's what He says. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of His Son, while we were still His enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of His Son. This Christmas, as you think about all the many thoughts that will cross your mind, it's my prayer that one of them will be that you did not begin this life on the side of God, but you and I Exactly the same, we began our lives opposed to God, outside of His family. And maybe you've been a Christian so long, you've forgotten that. I I know many days I forget. But as Romans 5.10 reminds us, we were still God's enemies when He reached out and made a way for us to become His friends. And He did this through the life of His Son, Jesus Christ. What we celebrate this Christmas is that God reached out to us and He turned an enemy into a friend. As you think about the real relationships all around you, people you really care about, who mean something to you, maybe right now you're grieving because that love has been broken one direction or the other, and you're lamenting that. Love is the most powerful force in the universe. It's so powerful that God doesn't just say He has love or He practices love. He is love. Love is that power, that force, which fully embodies the heart and the root of who God is. Would you pray and work hard at loving others this way and ask God to help others around you love you this way? And it all begins with recognizing that all that love begins by seeing that God Himself loves us this way. We're going to sing a final song, and then when we come back from that, I'll dismiss us with a blessing. But I I hope that this song will be a blessing to you, and that as you sing it, God will call to mind some of the convictions He's laying on your heart. May God help you see that no matter how hard you work to reject Him, He will continue to reach out for you. What we celebrate at Christmas is that God loved His enemies, and that's how we became His sons and daughters. May this blessing also then compel you to love those that you currently hate. For all those around you, to love them the way that Jesus loved us. Gaze into Scripture, see the way God loves, and commit your heart to love Him and others in this beautiful way. May love fill your life. May your life 
fill other lives with love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, be blessed now and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.